Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. It's the back-to-school episode for Back to School Week. It's after Labor Day. We're all getting serious about things again. Uh, and that includes the planet Earth, which looks pretty serious to us right now. Uh, we've got uh, Rosa Brooks in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark Studio. She is joined there by Colin Call of Georgetown University. They're both of Georgetown University, although rumor has it Colin may defect. Um, and uh, we also have Corey Shockey out at Stanford in Palo Alto. And I am in Cape Town, South Africa, having returned successfully from uh, a safari and encounters with all sorts of wild animals who have filled me with metaphors about Washington that I will try to resist. (laughs) Uh, uh, I will try to resist for as long as I possibly can. Um, it seems like the thing we really ought to focus on, guys, is the serious stuff. There's temptation to get into other kinds of things. Um, and I actually had a, a column in the uh, uh, Washington Post today talking a little bit about what we've learned about how President Donald Trump handles crises based on the North Korea crisis. Uh, which is still ongoing, and the hurricane, Harvey. Um, And my conclusion was that unlike some presidents that fumble and some presidents that handle these things masterfully, so far Trump is 0 for 2, because in both cases, he's not only not particularly handled the crisis well, he's actually made it worse, both with his um, tweets and various other statements, but also with concrete actions that he's taken. Now, this could be unfair. It could be that I'm jet-lagged and I'm picking on poor Donald Trump again. Colin, am I? Well, I I don't think so. Uh, At least in the case of North Korea, I think that uh, Donald Trump has shown himself repeatedly to tweet first, meet, and think about things later to the degree that he does those things. I mean, we've seen now for more than, well, the entire administration, but over the last month, You know, we've had his fire and fury comments, his locked and loaded comments. Uh, You know, when uh, when North Korea tested an ICBM and crossed kind of Trump's uh, Twitter red line uh, on July 4th, um, you know, he 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 ranted and raved about a fire and fury and and how a military strike uh, could be could be imminent. Uh, Then this past Sunday, of course, the North Koreans tested what looks to be uh, a very large nuclear weapon, either a hydrogen bomb or potentially a boosted uh, uh, nuclear bomb, uh, something uh, in, you know, on the order of, of 
tens of times more powerful than, uh, or hundreds of times more powerful than the bomb that we dropped on Hiroshima. So a very big bomb. Uh, and you know what does Donald Trump do? He immediately goes to Twitter and uh, bashes the South Koreans, blaming them for being appeasers. Uh, claims to cut off trade with the entire world, and then says, uh, "And I plan to meet with my national security team later to talk about these things." So we we have a president who has gut impulses and instincts that he acts upon, tweets upon, ruminates upon at six o'clock in the morning when he brings out his portable phone. Uh, he then ostensibly sits in a room with adults and they try to walk him back. Uh, you saw uh, Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, and General Dunford, for example, come out after that national security meeting with some more uh, uh, Secretary Mattis with some more reasonable uh, remarks, um, more carefully calibrated. But I, I think this is a real problem because both our adversaries uh, and our allies, to some degree, benefit from predictability. Our adversaries, it, it helps them avoid miscalculation. Our allies, it helps them, uh, uh, you know, believe that we'll stick with them when when the going gets tough. And if I'm sitting in South Korea or Japan right now, I'm not so confident about that uh, when it comes to Trump. Well, I think that's a really important point, Corey. Uh, uh, and and to me, the, the, you know, the inflammatory talk, the bellicosity um, is bad um, and it makes people nervous, but it's not quite as bad as landing on some policy choices that are just crazy destructive, you know, like, hey, let's let's pull our trade deal with South Korea at the moment that we need to be closest to them, or let's cut off trade to anybody who trades to North Korea, which includes China, India, Pakistan, and Germany, among other countries. I mean, to me, this is 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 in some ways crazier than than all the bellicosity. Um, because it would be so damaging to the alliances that Colin is talking about and the the strategic relationships that are so important in this. Um, do you think that's the worst thing that he's done, or is there something else? Uh, so, David, I definitely agree with you that the administration has not deconflicted the contradiction between their economic policy and their national security policy. And that means they are terrible strategists because there is no national security approach that succeeds without an economic component feeding into the political and military objectives. So, so I agree with you that, that they are doing this badly and that the president is the main reason they're doing this badly for the by now tiresomely quotidian lack of discipline on his part. I would like to object most strenuously to Colin's introduction of the term Twitter redline, which, uh, which is both an affront uh, uh, to the language, but much more importantly, no matter how um, accurately it attempts to capture the president's bluff and bluster on Twitter that seems to bear no relationship to actual policy, I agree with Colin and you that it's extraordinarily damaging in a set of circumstances this rife for, uh, for misunderstanding and on which there is such a hair trigger for, you know, actual warfare for the president to be talking as recklessly as he is now. Yeah, he's, pre he's been pretty reckless. 
Now, you know, one of the people who's who's supposed to be measured and calm and so forth uh, in in all of this, Rosa, is of course General Mattis, who's the grown up, the deputy president, the one we rely on, uh, the steady hand on the tiller, et cetera, et cetera. And he did make some remarks, and many people have said, well, they were more measured remarks. But if you look at his remarks, I mean, he essentially says we're going to obliterate anybody who poses a threat to us, um, which you know could include anybody. I mean, posing a threat is not exactly um, uh, you know, sufficient to trigger military attack, is it? I mean, well, or, or am I missing so something? taken in context, uh, I don't think he was saying anybody we think poses a threat, uh, past, present, or future will be annihilated. Uh, I think taken in the broader context, uh, he was pretty clearly saying, North Korea, we get the slightest hint that you're actually seriously for real going to do something to attack the U.S. or allies. Be warned. You know, we will respond immediately, decisively, and in a way that you will not like. Uh, and and that that is not inconsistent, I think, with what uh, prior administrations have have said. Uh, I you know I think I think in the context he was actually he was dialing it down in the context. Um, so I didn't read it that way. I read it you know since it was also coupled with comments about diplomacy and comments about working with our allies and comments about we don't want war. Whereas you know that is very different from these decontextualized little tweets of. I'm going to get you. No, I'm really going to get you. Yeah, we're really, really going to get you, um, which then don't get followed up. I mean, I mean, I mean, I, I actually think that Colin's Twitter led, red line phrase is, is however infelicitous we may find it as a as a concept or, um, you know, this we many of us here um, were very critical of President Obama's handling of the serious situation on the grounds that. You know, if you say there's a red line, don't say there's a red line if you're not prepared to to enforce it. Um, and I, you know, I think that that criticism remains a fair one uh, of President Obama. But I think we're now seeing President Trump do the same thing multiplied by, you know, a thousand, which is to say dashing off these sort of crazy, irresponsible, we're going to get you. Uh, and then he loses interest and instead he's admiring the hurricane and how big it is. Actually, that's the only nice thing I'm going to say about President Trump. He didn't actually cause the hurricane. Um, so let's let's give him that. He did not, <laughs> did not cause the hurricane. And I don't think he caused Irma either. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll let him off the hook. Um, we won't necessarily let him off the hook for response or for any of his awful climate-related policies or budget-cutting policies, but we will let him off for not actually causing the hurricane. But actually, and I did think that was sort of bizarre, right? Here is this horrific hurricane which is destroying the lives of countless Americans, uh, you know, killing scores and and leaving uh, scores of thousands of people homeless and and economically devastated. And the president's tweeting these sort of enthusiastic things like, "Wow, what a wonderful storm!" And you know. <laughs> Whereas North Korea detonates a hydrogen bomb, I, ca- I half expected Trump to sort of go, wow, what a great bomb, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> so as Corey says, there are some unresolved contradictions uh, in the uh, Trump tweet approach to the world. Well, I mean, I don't know if they're contradictions. <laughs> I mean, I think he's demonstrated that he um, is, uh, you know, kind of unhinged and he, and he doesn't respond to things in the way that a normal human being uh, does but but let let me drill down a little bit here because I I you know I'm pleased that we all think Mattis is being more measured in all of this. 
uh, or at least that you guys do. Although um, I will but, say that Mattis is looking like he's aged about two decades in the last six months. Yeah, well, that's true. But let me let me take it let me take it a step further, Colin. The the, you know, we we say you know if you listen to what Rosa said, that was pretty rational. Um, but he said threat. You know, he said we we will you know be prepared to obliterate them in the case of a threat. He didn't get very specific. Rosa then said, well, you know, if he if they looked like they were about to attack us, well, I mean, they just set off a hydrogen bomb. And were probably and and they're launching ICBMs that go farther and farther and 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 one of which technically seems to have been able to hit some U.S. territory. Just what exactly are we waiting for? What what is the trigger? What is the Twitter red line in all of this? Yeah, well, and look, I think both Mattis and, and some things that Tillerson have said and and written have made it pretty clear that what they're talking about is if if the United States, our citizens, our allies, uh, our territories get attacked, uh, that we have the capability to massively retaliate, which is a statement of relatively general declaratory policy as it relates to nuclear uh, escalation. It's not unlike uh, the declaratory policy that the Obama administration, other administrations have had towards uh, North Korea and nuclear powers. I think where the president, where Trump is a lot more undisciplined, and what I meant by the Twitter red line was, of course, that you know he he tweeted during the transition that you know, North Korea wasn't going to be allowed uh, to to uh, get an ICBM or launch an ICBM. Well, that that red line was crossed. Uh, uh, you know, the Trump Trump said not going to happen. Well, it did happen uh, on July 4th. And then it happened again uh, several weeks after that. Uh, then uh, you had Trump's comments that any threat and in that case, he meant any threat, any hostile action uh, would bring, quote, fire and fury and power unlike the world has ever seen down on on Kim Jong Un. Uh, and I and obviously uh, Kim Jong Un then you know proceeded to threaten Guam. He then uh, launched off some more missiles and then he capped it off with this very large uh, nuclear explosion, the sixth uh, uh, nuclear test they've done, and by far uh, the largest, basically demonstrating that North Korea has a quote unquote city busting uh, capability, uh, uh, the ability not only to reach the United States but to uh, blow up an entire city. So I think making repeated statements like this and then having North Korea carry through with threats and then us not responding, and thank God we're not responding, does damage to our credibility, both in both in the eyes of adversaries, but I worry even more about our allies, about what it is we really stand for. And in fact, I think that's the biggest challenge about this whole North Korea episode, is the challenge that it poses for our allies. Because I think the listeners have to keep in mind that, you know, the principal goal that Kim Jong-un has in in, uh, in going after nuclear weapons and and, and the ability to reach the U.S. homeland with an ICBM uh, is to defend the regime against an invasion or regime change. But a secondary goal, but a very important one for him is to decouple the United States uh, from uh, uh, South Korea and Japan by driving a wedge between their interests and ours by basically putting a dilemma to any U.S. president, are you willing to sacrifice San Francisco for Seoul or Toledo for Tokyo? The kind of Boston for Berlin problem that we had during the Cold War, a standard ex- uh, extended deterrence uh, problem that we actually didn't have before the North Koreans developed an ICBM that could reach uh, the continental United States. But now we do pose that uh, issue. And so the question is, how do our allies 
believe that we would be willing to defend them and run the risk of a nuclear war when that nuclear war could come to the shores of the United States. And part of that you try to deal with through military deployments and declaratory policy and all the things that we know how to do and that I think the Pentagon is doing okay at. But part of it comes down to trust. They have to trust that when push comes to shove, we have their back. And that's where a lot of the other gratuitous things that Trump has done has totally gutted our ability to reassure our allies. His bashing the South Koreans repeatedly, including their new pre- uh, uh, President Moon, over uh, his efforts for you know dialogue, which the, which Trump blasted as appeasement. You mentioned David, you know, threatening to pull out of the U.S. South Korea free trade agreement um, at a time when our ally is anxious about our partnership. And I would I would conclude by saying also Donald Trump's preventive war talk. If you listen to people like Lindsey Graham who have talked to Trump about this, they basically say that when Trump talks about preventive war, the logic in his head is it's better to fight a war with North Korea today when it only kills Asians or only kills people in South Korea and Japan and doesn't kill people in the United States. Well, that signals to our allies that we're willing to fight a war if it kills them, but not willing to fight a war if it kills us. And that calls into question the entire credibility of any extended deterrent. So if you had to write up a playbook for Trump to signal to our allies that we were not reliable, uh, it would basically be uh, advising the president to do precisely what he's been doing over the last couple of weeks. Um, well, I don't, I don't think any of us could uh, take responsibility for having written such a playbook. That kind of thing is left to Stephen Miller, I guess, or whoever the president listens to when he's in those dark moments. But, uh, Corey, let's, you know, because we're all here in the deep state and deep state radio and and we actually, you know, can talk candidly about these things in ways that public officials can't. Let's just admit it, right? North Korea detonated a hydrogen bomb. It's got 60 nuclear warheads. It has intercontinental ballistic missile capability. Attacking North Korea would produce a war on the Korean peninsula that would kill hundreds of thousands of people, possibly more than that. We're not going to do that. They have nuclear weapons. We're going to have to learn how to live with it. Come on, admit it. So I hope that logic holds, David, uh, because it is a logic that I agree with. But a couple of points um, related to it. First, um, you know, I'm less confident than you that the iron logic of not killing, not putting 300,000 South Koreans uh, to death by howitzer and artillery uh, in order to protect the United States from someone who may in the future choose to hurt us. Uh, That seems to me a really bad uh, trade-off to make, and it would seem a terrible trade-off to any president other than this one, but I'm less confident that that the president buys into that logic. I, I think, as on so many other issues, it's really hard to tell where the president is. And even when the cabinet is united, in fact, maybe especially when the cabinet is united in giving advice, the president seems to thrash around an awful lot. And as on the Iran nuclear certification, as on the Afghanistan uh, strategy review, uh, as on many other issues, that the president seems to feel trapped when people agree that there's not an easy answer of the kind that he campaigned on. 
And, and so I am actually worried about the president making reckless choices. The second thing I would say is that I agree with Collins' assessment of the North Korean leader's motives, namely primary motive is to preserve regime survival and secondary motive is to separate the United States from its Asian allies. And that um, in both of those, it probably has Chinese support, not Chinese opposition. They are happy for us to have a distraction from their bad behavior and they would be delighted to see the unraveling of America's alliance relations. But I would caution that neither Colin nor I probably know the answer to that question. We're presuming a logical solution, a logical conclusion to that. And as with Donald Trump, I think we ought to have a hefty dose of modesty that we actually know what they're thinking and what their motivations are. Because I think one of the reasons this particular circumstance is so unsettling is because there's such wide variance from reason on both sides. The last thing, I promise I'll stop after this, David, but to answer your question of is there a better answer than learning to live with a nuclear-armed North Korea, I personally don't think so. I think, like, sympathetic as I am to the notion of preventative war, I think it is unsuited for the United States both as a moral country and as uh, the status quo leader of a, as a beneficent hegemon, I think we ought to acknowledge we shouldn't be in that business because we cannot carry our allies with us if we are in that business. And that is especially true given the risks that South Korea is running in these circumstances. Well, you know, he, he does talk a big game, Rosa, but, you know, he... he, he seems to be one of these guys who says, I have a really big missile. I have a really... Are we talking re- about... Are we talking about... Ah, I don't want the visual. I do not want that about, visual. Yeah, I, I, I also, David, am troubled by the uh, ambiguity. There was no ambiguity. <laughs> I was going to say that he says, I have a really, really big missile. But he never actually gets the missile to go off. You know, he says, I'm going to take this tough action. Even in the case of Syria, you know, he launched, you know, a couple of cruise missiles at some empty runways, um, didn't do much. He's talked big games in lots and lots of places. But, you know, when it, you know, gets tough, whether it's in domestic policy or, you know, something like DACA, he doesn't, you know, he's like, leave it to the Congress, leave this to the Congress, let somebody else do it. I'm going to blame somebody else. I'm not going to take action. So, you know, if you were Kim Jong-un, would you take some comfort from that? You know, that he, that he talks a big sure. game, but he tends not to deliver? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, and, and I would also say, so what else is new on all of this? I don't, uh, for better or for worse, I don't think our allies are any more depressed and disappointed than they were a month ago or the month before that or the month before that. I think, I think there's nothing new here in terms of revelations about Trump's... Uh, instability, uh, uh, short attention span, tendency to bluster and then forget things, et cetera. Um, you know, we already knew this. Um, uh, so it's just, you know, confirming everybody in their <laughs> pre-existing state of existential angst and despair. Um, but, but you know, I, I think North Korea is behaving in a fairly rational fashion. And in fact, there was a 
headline. I think both the Washington Post and the New York Times ran stories in the last few days with headlines like, uh, you know, here's the New York Times headline, I think it was motives of North Korea's leader baffle Americans and allies. And I thought, I thought, you know, I'm going to write a story says, you know, bafflement of New York Times and Washington Post baffles Rosa because it seems to me perfectly clear what their motivations are. Um, you know, and, and Corey and, and Colin have articulated uh, their interests and they're behaving in a perfectly rational fashion, which is that they correctly have uh, reached the conclusion that the United States is kind of, you know, we're, 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 we're on the bench. We're not playing at the moment. We may make noises, but we're not going to do anything unless they actually attack us, which I assume that they have no particular intention of doing because they know it would be suicide. But in the meantime, you know, up to the point where they actually obliterate human beings with their missiles that they can get away with whatever they want and why not do it while they can. Um, you know, so they're taking advantage of the vacuum created by uh, Donald Trump. Plus, plus, you know, again, to be fair, just as Trump did not cause Hurricane Harvey, uh, Trump similarly, you know, th this was set in motion a long time ago. And it's not particularly clear that that a different president would have better options. You know, I think I think at the end of the day, Corey is right. You know, unless Trump uh, has a terrifying 3 a.m., you know, where's that nuclear football moment in which, you know, Madison and Kelly are not around to give him a sedative or whatever, um, you know, unless that happens, the U.S. is going to continue to make noises. Everybody else will continue to make noises. There will be a variety of additional creative efforts at sanctions. A lot depends on how pissed off the Chinese get at North Korea. Um, but in the meantime, you know, it's not worth going to war. It's not worth preventing Another nuclear power emerging in the world, that the prevention of that is not worth the lives of hundreds of thousands of innocent people and the catastrophe that would ensue. And everybody recognizes that with the possible exception of Donald Trump. OK, Colin, you've worked in the White House. You've given advice um, uh, to the increasingly masterful looking Obama administration. Uh, at least, you know, the, the benefit of comparison with your successor. Uh, but let's 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 pretend for a moment that we are trying to come up with the right policy and that Donald Trump is not the president and his dysfunctional White House is not at the center of all of this kind of thing. And let's assume for a moment that Corey's assumption, my assumption um, is 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 correct, that um, North Korea has 60 nuclear warheads or more. It's got ICBM capacity. We are not going to go to war with them. And so what we have to do is we have to come up with a way to live with this. Uh, you know, Dwight Eisenhower faced this challenge. You know, he went through exactly the same thing early in his administration. The right wing of the Republican Party said, let's confront Russia before they get stronger on this. Let's even go to war. And Eisenhower said, slow down, guys. Let's go up to the solarium of the White House. He said he did this project solarium where he got everybody in rooms. He broke them into groups. They played out different scenarios. And he sort of seeded the clouds a little bit. So they came out saying, look, the thing to do is to contain the Russians, uh, make them aware that mutually assured destruction or their destruction was going to be the outcome of this thing and do everything we could to allow the forces within the Soviet Union that were going to actually bring down uh, the Soviet empire ultimately to do their thing because he felt that they were deeply flawed from within. 
Now, North Korea is not as strong as the Soviet Union was, and it's more flawed on the inside than the Soviet Union was. And so that kind of approach seems to make sense to me. Um, and since you've been in the White House more recently, I'm just wondering, what would you be advising um, a different president on this? Yeah, it's a, it, first of all, this is one of the toughest international challenges uh, that the United States has faced for now decades. Uh, I mean, you can go back and criticize the Clinton administration, the George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration, and the Trump administration. So nobody has gotten this thing uh, figured out, but we are where we are. Uh, and the question is, where do we go from here? And and the, the starting point is whether you presume uh, that Kim Jong-il is a rational actor or not. Uh, because if he is, then there's certain options uh, that you have for containing the challenge uh, like we did during the Cold War. If you presume he's not, uh, then it pushes you in a very different direction. And I, I will say one of the things, uh, just as an aside, that worries me the most is we often talk about the adults in the room. But H.R. McMaster said something, uh, the National Security Advisor, who's one of those adults, said something a couple of weeks ago that scared the hell out of me, which was that Kim Jong-un, because he was a mass murderer uh, of his own people, was undeterrable, that the logic of nuclear deterrence didn't apply to him. I think he said that in the context of criticizing an op-ed that Susan Rice had written, his predecessor. Um, but if that's really if that's really what he believes, that Kim Jong-un is undeterrable, even though he's had nuclear weapons for more than a decade and has not used them, uh, then the only answer is preventative war. Uh, that is, a war now before he builds up his nuclear arsenal and inevitably uses it down the road. And then you're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people dead. So I hope that H.R. McMaster doesn't really believe that. I think most analysts of North Korea, and I think, I think Corey's point that we should all be humble about trying to get inside of Kim Jong-un's head, um, uh, uh, but nevertheless, the most analysts of North Korea believe that at the end of the day, he is a mass murderer, just like Mao was a mass murderer and Stalin was a mass murderer, but that he wants his own personal survival and he wants his family to continue to rule over North Korea. And the United States can hold both of that at risk by threatening to annihilate him if he uses nuclear weapons against us. And that, So that's the logic of mutually assured destruction. And in this case, it's not mutually assured destruction because he can't destroy the entire United States, but we can uh, end him. So then the question is, all right, so what should the goal of U.S. policy be? I think there's a short-term goal and a medium to long-term goal. Um, the sh the, I think a lot of people agree that we should increase the pressure on North Korea. Certainly the Trump administration wants to do that. But it begs the question, pressure to what end? What is the goal that they are seeking? If the goal is denuclearization, it's not going to happen. Uh, Kim Jong-un's not going to give up his nuclear weapons. He's not going to give up his ICBM. It's his ace in the hole. Uh, he's weathered all this pressure so far. He's That genie is out of the bottle. It's never going to get stuffed back in. Um, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial page suggested maybe the goal of pressure is regime change. I also don't think that's going to happen because the Chinese hold the key to that, and the Chinese are more scared of state collapse in North Korea than they are uh, of North Korean nukes, so they're never going to go along with an all-out regime change strategy. And frankly, signaling regime change as our goal to Kim Jong-un probably backs him into a corner and makes a war uh, more likely. So that's a bad idea, which leaves us the last option of what pressure is for, which is essentially to get a slowdown or a freeze uh, in uh, the nuclear program in exchange for some confidence building measures on our side, whether that's on the economic or military side. This is a very difficult uh, pill for us to swallow. But like in the Cold War, uh, when you had a series of arms control agreements that first slowed the pace of the buildup of nuclear weapons and, you know, through things like the SALT agreements, and then eventually reduced either entire classes of, wep of weapons like the INF Treaty or started to eliminate strategic weapons like Star 
chart that you should go down an arms control uh, uh, path whereby you use pressure to incentivize an arms control uh, agreement, but not presuming that you can uh, denuclearize uh, North Korea with the goal of avoiding a nuclear war. That is, in the near term, our goal is not that they have no nuclear weapons, is that we have no nuclear war. And then in the medium and long term, we can work on what you and Corey and, and, and Rosa have, have talked about or hinted at, which is, in essence, putting in place a containment and deterrence regime, and I should also say a reassurance regime that shows our commitment to our Asian allies, communicates clearly uh, and unequivocally uh, that Kim cannot commit aggression against our allies or us without facing consequences he's not going to be uh, able to stomach, and making that credible and basically bottling up his regime and waiting them out. You're right. They're a lot more fragile uh, than the Soviet Union was. While we shouldn't have a policy of regime change, it doesn't mean that we can't encircle the regime, bottle it up, and wait uh, for its inevitable demise. And that's a terrible, terrible, terrible strategy, except for every other one. Uh, Corey, do you agree? Uh, I mostly agree with that. I do think uh, with it, I... <laughs> so I agree that um, that North Korea is probably deterrable because, in fact, they haven't attacked South Korea in, you know, almost 70 years, well, 65 years. Um, and uh, I do think the th I do think we have been clear and consistent across several American administrations that any attack on the United States or its allies by South Korea will be the destruction of the regime. I would like to see us make a differentiation between an attack on North Korea and the destruction of the regime because it seems to me that especially in authoritarian societies, Holding uh, the public accountable for the choices of the leadership uh, is unnecessarily punitive. So I would sharpen the threat, uh, not that we will destroy North Korea, but that we will ensure that nobody in a position of authority in the regime survives and that we will impose a regime of our choice in conjunction with countries that help us enforce this to include China, South Korea, Japan, and others. The second uh, differentiation I think I would make in addition to sharpening and narrowing the threat to North Korea, the second thing that I would do differently, I've, uh, I'm a lot more hesitant than Colin about the brittleness of the regime and that bottling it up will uh, will bring about its organic destruction because the parallels with Cuba since 1960 seem to me pretty strong. Cuba even used the American dollar and we couldn't make that much effect on it. So I think we actually need to resign ourselves to the fact that it's going to be this North Korea. It's going to have the ability to threaten the United States and our allies with nuclear weapons. Uh, and we all ought to dust off our Tom Schelling books and start to think more creatively <laughs> about deterrence. And the last thing I would say on this is... <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> just a happy day when we can talk about nuclear apocalypse again. 
least I at least I didn't say Tom Lehrer with his third world war songs that are so short because the war's <laughs> so short. Um, uh, and the last thing, though, on North Korea is that I really think we make a mistake um, with countries that are approaching the nuclear threshold by not shifting our own uh, deterrent posture from saying that possession will be intolerable, which it manifestly has not been with the Soviet Union, with China, with Pakistan, uh, with Iran, and now with North Korea. North Korea has been a nuclear weapons state since the Obama administration. Um, and since the Bush administration? He tested in 2006, <laughs> and he I, got fissile, fissile material okay. in the Clinton administration. <laughs> okay, I cede you the point. For the eight years of the Obama administration and the last two years of the Bush administration, we have been dealing with the nuclear North Korea. And all that time, we have been um, implausibly insisting that we won't stand for it, just as we implausibly insisted we wouldn't stand for it with Iran. And what a smarter strategy would be, which is to, as they approach the nuclear threshold, to reinforce that, that what is unacceptable is them getting any political gain from crossing the threshold. So minimize the accomplishment of getting there and reinforce that any use would be uh, they wouldn't survive it. And so you shift the line from you can't have these to these won't make any difference to your situation. That would be a much smarter approach. I'd love to see us move to that. Okay, so we've only got a couple minutes left in this episode, and I'm going to go to Rosa for the last comment here. But I do want everybody who's listening to go and then replay the past 20 minutes because this was the most rational discussion you'll hear about North Korea um, anywhere, you know, because you turn on the TV and everybody's getting hysterical. You turn to the White House, they're getting even more hysterical. Kim Jong-un is, you know, pretty hysterical himself. People are nervous everywhere. The reality is... We're very calm. We are, we are calm, right, because here in the deep state, we've gamed this all out, and that's why I'm turning now to Rosa, queen of apocalyptic visions here in the deep state, to say, Rosa... You've got two minutes. Tell our listeners what is going to happen with North Korea over the course of the next couple of years. So if I had to stake my life on it, which as it turns out, I do, um, <laughs> I, would, I would say I think nothing much is going to happen. You know, Correct. I, I, I think that we continue to make noises. They continue to make noises. They continue to do tests and we make bigger noises and everybody rattles various sabers and missiles and everything else they can find to rattle um, and that we continue it's, – it's status quo, you know, that, that we continue to try to see if we can persuade China to exert more pressure on North Korea. We continue to work with allies through the UN and elsewhere to do exactly what Corey said, which is to deny them any greater advantage than they already have. And I wouldn't say they, they don't have no advantage. They know that they have an advantage. And the advantage is that, you know, if they didn't possess nuclear weapons, we might decide, well, let's go squish them. You know, I mean, it would be it would be controversial. Lots of innocent people would die. We would get a lot of criticism, but we might, you know, a rational U.S. administration might decide that the costs of military action against a non-nuclear North Korea 
were were better than the alternative. Um, I think we're now in a position where, you know, at least a rational United States says, no, uh, they're, they're a nuclear power and the costs of conflict, direct military confrontation would be so catastrophic to everybody that we, re- we really do want to avoid it at all costs, you know, short of defensive action in the event of a first use uh, by the North Koreans that we're going to avoid it. Um, so, so I think that they, they clearly have an advantage if, to the extent that they're their goal is regime survival, um, that they have correctly calculated that becoming a nuclear power helps protect the regime. Uh, and it does. That being said, we can try to make sure that that's the only advantage that they get, that they get no further advantages, that, yeah, your regime survives in your you know, miserable, depressed country, uh, which eventually we hope you know, implodes uh, under, under its own weight. Uh, uh, you know, repressive countries can last for a very, very long time. There's no guarantee it collapses, but it might, particularly if we can bring enough economic, diplomatic, and other pressure to bear. Uh, so I think that that is, is, you know, the reason why I have not, in fact, taken up residence in the deep state uh, hardened missile silo or um, uh, yet or a bunker or whatever it is that we are all about to take refuge in when, when the going gets really tough uh, is because I, I, in fact, think that those of us living here in Washington, D.C. Uh, are probably in greater danger from a potential uh, landfall of Hurricane Irma than we are from a potential war with North Korea, notwithstanding all the rhetoric. See, folks, the thing you expected the least. Tiara Rosa of Bro- optimism goes to Rosa. <laughs> <laughs> I kneel down and hand it up to you, Rosa. Well, thank you. <laughs> It's rare. (laughs) It's up with the tiara of optimism. This is a happy day for everybody. A great back to school episode. Mug half full. The mug is half full. (laughs) Look, as half full as it gets, but not so bad. Um, And uh, and a great way to start off this new sort of season of Deep State Radio. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Rosa. And everybody, come back on Thursday. For another episode with this same great group of people. Thanks very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.